You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. This is Roger Dooley, author of Friction, The Untapped Force That Can Be Your Most Powerful Advantage, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week, I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas in order to succeed in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you are a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. This show is produced by my marketing firm. We work with manufacturers to help them grow. If you're a manufacturer and are serious about growing your business, check out our guide to lead generation for manufacturers on our website, salesartillery.com or Google lead generation for manufacturers and you'll find the guide at the top of the organic results. And special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Blinkist. Blinkist is a really cool app that takes the key insights from the best nonfiction books and distills them into a format that you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes on your smartphone. Several of the books featured on the Marketing Book Podcast are on Blinkist. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer for Marketing Book Podcast listeners where you can sign up for free at Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. Blinkist is spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. And if you opt for the paid version, you'll get an additional 20% off, but only if you go to Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast or just click on the link at MarketingBookPodcast.com. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome Roger Dooley to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his newest book, Friction, the untapped force that can be your most powerful advantage, published by McGraw-Hill. Roger Dooley is an author and international speaker known for practical business strategies based on science. He is the author of Brainfluence and creator of the popular neuromarketing blog. He also hosts the Brainfluence podcast and is a contributor at Forbes. He co-founded College Confidential, the leading website for college-bound students and parents, which was later acquired by a UK firm, where he was then vice president of digital marketing. He also spent years in direct marketing as the co-founder of a successful catalog firm. And before all these entrepreneurial adventures, he was director of strategic planning at a Fortune 1000 company. And interesting fact, he is yet another marketer who holds an engineering degree from Carnegie Mellon, no less, go Tartans. Roger, congratulations on Friction and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me on, Douglas. You're making me feel really old by reciting my history there, but uh, it's great to be here. Well, it's interesting to have another marketer and author who has an engineering degree, which is further affirmation that marketing has gone from madmen to mathmen. 
Hmm, I, maybe that's your interpretation, Doug. I, I think that engineering is a good background for almost any field, mainly because it uh, uh, is a discipline that forces you to deal with the world as it really is. You know, if um, if you're a civil engineer, uh, you really have to understand gravity and uh, the forces at work because otherwise that bridge or building you build will fall down. Where in you know uh, in the humanities, sometimes you can uh, you don't have to be quite that precise. You know, a good <laughs> right. argument is as good as facts. Uh, but uh, for engineers, uh, you know, it's it's important to deal with the real world. Well, that's true. And I went to school with a lot of engineering majors, and many of them are attorneys. <laughs> Or they are running businesses or flying planes. It's all kinds of things where, yes, you do want people doing those kinds of things who are in touch uh, with the real world and uh, the, the practical aspects of things. But your book, Friction, is also why I have a small can of WD-40 on my desk. And it's not because I use it to spray things here in the office. There's not a lot of mechanical things here. But I even got small cans of WD-40 to put on everyone's desk because of this issue of friction. And uh, your book was yet another one of those books that was, I, I sometimes say, helped to rewire my marketing brain. Or you could also say this was a major upgrade to the way that marketers should be thinking, and, and not just marketers, but also businesses. Now, I want to start with a couple of excerpts from the book, and then I want to ask you to tell about the story that's at the very beginning of the book. So, my intention for this book is to give you and every other reader your very own pair of friction goggles. These goggles will help you discover friction, which I define as the unnecessary expenditure of time, effort, or money in performing a task in all kinds of places. And then you go on to say that friction is not the kind of friction that many of us experience at family reunions or Thanksgiving dinners with other kinds of people or maybe in the workplace. That's a, that's a different book. You say, instead, we'll show how friction affects the success of businesses and individuals and even the course of nations. We'll also discuss many ways to reduce friction or occasionally use it to our advantage. If I have one overriding objective in this book, it's to help you identify friction everywhere in your work, personal life, and community. Once an enemy is visible, he or she is far easier to defeat. And when we eliminate friction, we make our lives and the lives of those around us better. And there's one other part from the very end of the book that I just <laughs> I found very interesting, particularly after having read the book. And you say, not long before I began writing this book, I was a speaker at a private mastermind for entrepreneurs. I was recording an interview with the organizer who asked for my best secret to increase sales. I began to talk about reducing friction for customers, and he cut me off. Everybody knows about friction. Give me something they don't know. <laughs> this was an advanced group of marketers, and perhaps they did all know about friction, but considering the amount of friction I encounter every day online and offline, there are quite a few people in the world who do not know about friction, or if they do, they discount its importance. Everyone may know about friction, but in too many cases, they aren't doing anything about it. And I would argue, uh, Roger, that too many people are just not looking. They, they don't know what to look for. They're not aware of it. It's sort of like uh, explaining friction. It's like explaining water uh, to a fish. It's just they're so uh, immersed in it, they're, they're not aware of it. But please 
take us back to the story at the very beginning of the book, I, and, and this, this story was very well told. For a moment there, I thought I was reading a Bob Berg book, who, who is one of the <laughs> authors that endorsed yours. But tell us that story about the two employees who got into the safe that, where they weren't really supposed to be. I will do that, but uh, I'll jump back uh, quickly to your WD-40 comment, Douglas. Uh, I, too, have a little can of WD-40 uh, oh. on my desk, believe it or not. Uh, and uh, I've had Gary Ridge, the CEO of WD-40, on my podcast, and he is also an endorser of the book. Uh, so I'm, I figure if the guy who's done more to fight friction globally uh, for the last uh, 20 or 30 years or something like that, like the book, then it's, uh, it's got to be okay from a friction standpoint. So then I wasn't a nut job for wanting little cans of WD-40 on everyone's desk. Uh, believe it or not, I've actually got uh, several boxes of, uh, uh, like, uh, big bulk boxes of those little cans in my uh, garage right now uh, <laughs> for a, a purpose that I will uh, name at some future date. Okay. But, <laughs> okay. Uh, in any case... Um, I tell a story uh, uh, about friction goggles at the beginning of the book, and it's like a little fable, and I call it a modern fable. Uh, and you're uh, right uh, in that Bob Berg actually was an inspiration. I'd read a few other business uh, fable-type books, and really uh, they hadn't done it for me, but I read Bob's Go-Giver, and I thought, wow, this is really a great way to communicate. Now, I didn't, I didn't want to write a book-length fable, but I thought what a great way to uh, introduce people to the idea that uh, you know, you can start seeing friction everywhere that you did not see before. And uh, so I tell the story of two sort of middle managers uh, in a company that are uh, under orders to cut costs in their department by 10% because the company isn't going to make its numbers that quarter. Uh, and they are going through uh, the usual sorts of things of uh, headcount reduction, pushing people into uh, who want customer service into voice menus uh, so they can solve their own problems, uh, uh, perhaps uh, with a little bit more effort and so on. And they discover uh, w through a series of events that I don't have to detail here uh, uh, in a an office safe, uh, this odd box uh, that uh, has a uh, some rather old looking designs on it uh, and open it up. And in there, there's a pair of goggles. They try these on. And uh, after they return to their desk, after carefully closing the safe, which they weren't supposed to be in, they find that they are seeing friction in their customer experience, that pushing people into complicated voice menus that, that won't give them the answer they want, uh, even after they spend uh, 10 or 15 minutes in them, uh, is not the way to save money. It is a death spiral to push people into that kind of thing. And they even look at their internal experience inside the company and uh, they see how much time is wasted with uh, bad processes and time wasted in meetings, time wasted handling emails. And they realize that friction is really everywhere. And so they uh, go into their Monday morning meeting with a CEO who had challenged them for this. And at first he's rather upset, but uh, then he realizes uh, that they are on the right track and him simply pushing to cut costs is indeed uh, the wrong way to go. And they end with an emphasis on looking for friction inside their company. Now, there's a backstory that is not in the book, Douglas. Uh, uh, there is uh, some actually some solid science behind these magic friction goggles. Not that you can don a pair of magic goggles and suddenly start seeing things, but uh, that our brains have something uh, called the reticular activating system. And uh, the RAS is a filter that screens out everything you don't need to pay attention to. 
So imagine if you are crossing the street in Times Square, uh, your RAS is only letting through uh, the crosswalk indicator, oncoming cars, uh, and the pedestrians right around you. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's filtering out all those thousands of other stimuli that uh, would be totally distracting and you would be uh, probably immobilized if you, could, if you were actually trying to pay attention to it all. And the, probably most of our listeners have had their own RAS experience where if they've ever brought, bought a new car, uh, suddenly, like in the next week or so, they start seeing cars like it everywhere, where before they hadn't seen them. They say, well, wow, where did all these cars come from? I thought my color and style were unique, and now, man, they're, they're everywhere. Those cars were there. It's just that now uh, your RAS says, oh, this is important. This is my car, and it's letting that information through that was previously screened out. And what I've found is, that once people start seeing friction in an experience, uh, they start seeing it elsewhere. Uh, when people, and the thing I like about my uh, little fable is that uh, these two people are initially focused on customer experience, but once they start seeing friction, the customer experience, they start seeing it in their own experience uh, as employees and managers. So it really emphasizes the point that uh, I see as being of critical importance that uh, you have to have both happy, engaged uh, people to deliver a, a high level of customer experience and customer service. Uh, and if you eliminate friction in both places, uh, you're going to have much more loyalty among your customer base and you'll have more engaged people too. So uh, that's, that's the uh, friction goggle story. Well, those friction goggles are real. And I want to warn the listener that if you do read this book, you are going to be even less tolerant of bad service. Because <laughs> <Right. laughs> I'm going through... <laughs> yeah, there's a downside because it makes you a little bit... Well, makes me a little less uh, tolerant when I see this friction. And granted, it's easier uh, for me to see. But you talk about the friction goggles, but of course I have to... It, it brought to mind another idea when I read the book, and I'm, I'm glad you didn't include this idea in your book because it's, it can be kind of disgusting, but that's, that's where I come in, Roger. <laughs> so every year, at least on local television news, at least here in the U.S., when they're trying to get more people to watch, perhaps during sweeps, the sweeps period, when they get their ratings assessed, they'll go to a local hotel and say, not everything at this hotel is clean, and then they'll bring the TV camera in, and they'll break out a black light. And they'll start showing the bedspreads, like the sheets are clean, but maybe the bedspreads or maybe the cushions on the couch were not clean. And it, sadly, it, it illuminates bodily fluids. And it just freaks everyone out. And of course, it makes them watch uh, more television. And I thought, you know, the same thing is happening with this, with this book, where <laughs> I'm seeing everything differently. And I know that there are travelers who bring those black lights with them because they want to find this uh, th that sort of unpleasantness so they can make sure they have a really clean room. But good luck, good luck finding that. I mean, uh, <laughs> do, is there a clean room uh, where uh, you walk in and you do the black light and there is not? I know. I don't, there's certain things I don't want to know. You're yeah. exactly right. I don't want to know that. I'm not one of the ones that brings them around, but it was sort of like after reading the book, I'm like, I am. I, th this goggles, uh, this goggles uh, scenario is very true from just one of the many people that have read the book. Now, some folks may say, "Well, I don't want to know. I don't want to know about it." Kind of like me, you know. It's like, eh, I'm sure that I'm sure it's pretty clean. I, there's certain things I don't want to know. But in the book, you quoted a think tank founder, uh, Thomas 
Kulopoulos, I hope I pronounced his name correctly, and he explains that friction is almost always eliminated only when there is some sort of existential threat, and that usually comes from outside the company or industry. So I wanted to exhort the listeners not to wait uh, until it's too late to start looking for this friction. Now, you explain a quote from Jeff Bezos who said, when you reduce friction, make something easy, people do more of it. And you can talk about that, but I like Dooley's Law. Now, you didn't call it Dooley's Law, but I'm calling it Dooley's Law, and that is, it's even shorter. And if it's shorter, you know it's better. Decreasing friction increases action. Decreasing friction increases action. Explain. Well, the easier something is to do, the more likely it is to be done. And there's actually quite a bit of research uh, on this. Uh, B.J. Fogg at Stanford came up with his uh, Fogg behavior model uh, years ago uh, and says you need three things to either create or change a behavior. You need motivation. The person has to want to do it or want the result of doing it. There has to be a trigger or a prompt, as he now calls it, to sort of get the ball rolling. And there has to be ability which uh, translates loosely into minimum friction. Uh, The less friction there is, the easier that thing is to do, the more likely it will happen. And uh, his initial framework just uh, sort of sprang from his uh, head, I think. Uh, But since then, there's been a lot of online testing about those things. And they they definitely confirms uh, nearly, you know, just by every time that when you make something easier to do, uh, say on your website, you're more likely to convert customers Uh, If you increase their motivation uh, by, say, offering more discounts or free shipping or whatever other motivation you can provide, uh, that will uh, increase the uh, actions or the conversions on the site. So uh, there is a a lot of empirical evidence that that is true. And uh, you you mentioned Jeff Bezos, and uh, he is really the uh, perhaps the business leader that has most focused on friction way back in uh, 1997. In the very early days of e-commerce, he was talking about frictionless shopping. Uh, And a year later, in 98, they patented one-click ordering, which at the time I read about that and said, oh, you can't patent uh, something as simple as that. Well, it turned out you could patent it. And he spent millions of dollars uh, to defend it against uh, challenges from Barnes & Noble and others. and all that, uh, and he won eventually so that Barnes and Noble had to add a second click. So they would, uh, you know, click to order and then, oh, confirm your order. Uh, and when you think about it, uh, he and Amazon devoted all of this effort and money just to ensure that all of their competition would have to add one little click. Now, most companies would not think about one little click as being particularly important, but he saw the strategic value of that over the years. And, you know, that's part of their uh, key to dominance. And, you know, uh, Steve Jobs uh, saw that. Uh, he didn't mess around. Uh, he said, I want this for my new music store and just licensed it. He didn't try fighting it. He just said, I got to have it. So, you know, I think uh, that shows how even the smallest reduction in effort uh, can have a big impact. Of course, now, today, Amazon owns half of all e-commerce. Uh, so uh, it's uh, that and other things are really working for them. Yeah. So can you explain, let's just give an example of how friction elimination was the primary driver, no pun intended, for the ride-sharing apps like Lyft and Uber. They just seemed like they were fraught with friction, you know, trying to catch a taxi. 
Yeah, you know, and I think it's a good example, too, because people, by and large, did not recognize how much friction there was in the taxi experience, unless you had a particularly bad one, you know, or uh, uh, they never showed up and you missed your plane or something. But, you know, in a typical taxi experience, uh, there is still a lot of friction, but the incumbents didn't really notice that, nor did they have any reason to improve their customer experience because they were typically in a... uh, controlled industry that was uh, somewhat of a monopoly or uh, a license uh, situation where you, you know people couldn't really come in and disrupt them. Uh, when uh, Uber came in, they focused on the customer experience uh, and making every aspect of it as smooth and effortless as possible from finding your ride where you can see where they're at. And it also reduces that uncertainty. If you've ever been uh, waiting for the cab to get you to the airport uh, for a relatively sh- a close flight and uh, they, don't, they aren't there when, at the time, and there maybe uh, a couple minutes go by and they're still not there, at that point you're starting to wonder, oh my God, you know, did they lose uh, my request? Are they coming? Uh, are they, uh, were they in an accident? You have no idea where Uber eliminates that uncertainty. And that's just the beginning, of course. Uh, it's... Uh, you don't have to try communicating your destination to the driver who uh, may not always speak your same language uh, because it's in the app uh, and you can follow your route so you know they're not taking you the wrong way, uh, to perhaps to increase uh, the total fare. Uh, and when you leave, uh, you don't have the typical checkout process, which uh, I go through. I In some European cities, they don't have Uber and I have to take conventional cabs. And you see, oh, you want to pay by credit card because you don't have the local currency uh, in your pocket. Uh, and it's a very involved process. The driver has to hunt under the seat to get a uh, device out. They have to try and establish an internet connection and they you know, eventually do that. They take your card. They have to print stuff out. You have to sign it. And you know that can take you know, two, three, four minutes where on the Uber you just say, hey, thanks, goodbye. And it's um, they made it so effortless that they adopted this strategy that uh, not everybody agreed with. But they came in uh, pretty much in a guerrilla fashion and uh, started offering the service uh, in places, knowing that their customer experience was so good that their riders would support their efforts to be become legal in that area. Uh, and it worked in, in most places, and a few places where it hasn't quite worked yet, but I'm sure they'll work those out too. So, you know, but they, they saw this friction uh, when other people didn't. Uh, and that was really the key to them completely disrupting the taxi industry. Right. And as it relates to now going and, and seeing the friction that, that might be there, uh, you have some very good advice. And you say that if you really want to make something easy for your customers, don't compare your processes to your direct competitors. Why do you say that? Well, you know, it's easy to say, well, you know, we've got uh, three main competitors in this space and we are as good as or better than they are. Uh, the problem is that isn't really what the way your customers are looking at it. If you don't have a customer experience as smooth as Amazon's or Uber, they will feel that they are exerting extra effort, uh, that uh, you are just not very good. And they may be open to switching uh, where uh, you know, even though you think you're doing as uh, as well as the folks that in your space, uh, you know, on Amazon, I can look at every order I've placed uh, going back, I don't know, 12, 15 years or something like that. I'll find it in just a second or two where, you know, so many companies, how many companies let you do that? Uh, my cable TV provider or uh, cable uh, internet provider, sorry, 
uh, lets me look back like six months uh, for invoices. So when I'm doing my taxes at the end of the year, if I need to check an earlier invoice, I'm out of luck. Uh, you know, there's no reason. It's not like storage space is uh, that expensive, but uh, somehow, uh, for some reason, somebody coded their site that way to only have that amount of information available. And uh, so I'm immediately frustrated. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's uh, people expect these uh, very smooth experiences. And if you're not delivering that, you know, it would be good to look at the not the best in your space, but the sort of best of breed, um, you know, look at how Amazon does it. Look at how Uber does it. Look at how, you know, many of the uh, successful companies uh, do it. Even in the, uh, oh, and say the big uh, uh, home store space like uh, Lowe's and Home Depot, uh, there are substantial differences in uh, the customer experiences uh, on both of their main websites. So, you know, look at the people who are doing it right. And I, I would say in that category at the moment, uh, Home Depot is well ahead of Lowe's, even though when I'm in the store, uh, they seem quite comparable in most ways, uh, but their customer experience uh, through their website and app and such are better. Hmm, interesting. Yes. Yeah, so the, the first thing you probably shouldn't do is compare yourself to your competition because you might have terrible competitors. <laughs> I right, mean, think right, about yeah. a taxi company saying, oh, we're as good as these other taxi companies. They were missing the whole point. And as Jeff Bezos would say, focus on your customer. Look for your customer's friction. Don't compare yourself uh, to the other folks. So if you see that there's a particular friction point or pain point with your competitors that they're having with their customers, start there first. You don't have to defrictionize everything, but start with that first pain point and, and then look for the less uh, acute place. Yeah, and it's pretty much a sound business strategy. I'm uh, sure that there's uh, something in uh, Sun Tzu about that, that, uh, you know, attack your competition where they're weak or mm -hmm. attack the enemy where uh, he's weak. But I think one good example is the retail industry where Sears for years was uh, a hugely dominant force. They got their start uh, by being a catalog business. They saw that uh, rural customers were underserved. Rural customers would either have to travel to a city to shop in a department store, or they could uh, go to their local merchants, who typically uh, were quite expensive because their wholesale supplier might even be those same department stores uh, that uh, uh, the customer would have to travel to. So uh, they saw a niche and uh, began offering mail order products through catalogs uh, to uh, these rural customers. They didn't, they didn't uh, go after the department stores in the cities. Uh, and uh, they grew like crazy. Uh, and both Sears and Montgomery Wards emerged as huge players in this uh, rural space. And then eventually, uh, once they had built up uh, enormous sales, uh, they began to uh, open up retail stores. And they began to uh, go into cities. Uh, and even there, they chose initially uh, to avoid the downtown areas uh, for their locations. And instead, you look where the growth was and they located in the suburbs uh, where there was easier parking, easier access, uh, and they could build a big store at uh, a relatively modest cost. Uh, and so they went from uh, dominating uh, the sort of uh, catalog mail order business to dominating retail by uh, those steps. Uh, although it ended up being their own undoing because Walmart came along <laughs> Uh, and they saw that these rural customers uh, were now underserved because all their main option was mail order or local merchants or traveling. 
Uh, so they said, well, what if we open pretty large stores in places where we could get enough traffic? And so they began opening these stores where there's basically no serious retail competition. Uh, and that's where they built their base. Uh, and then, of course, once they had uh, uh, the resources, they began expanding everywhere. And now they're the world's biggest retailer. Mm -hmm. But uh, they're also very focused on Amazon now. So, uh... Oh, yeah. Well, it's, uh, that, it's an interesting struggle that will be playing out for quite a while, I imagine. And, and, they're, and they're definitely uh, smart people on both sides. Yeah. So, Roger, let's remind listeners what behavioral economics is and why that goes hand in hand with friction. Well, behavioral economics uh, is a comparatively new discipline compared to economics, although some argue uh, it actually goes back uh, maybe a, a century or two. Uh, it's just that uh, uh, somewhere in the 20th century, economics became pretty much a mathematical exercise uh, and uh, expected people to behave uh, as rational actors. So businesses wanted were built to maximize profits for their owners and uh, you know people acted in their own self-interest. Uh, they would make financial decisions that would benefit them. Uh, and this this held sway for quite a while until uh, some folks started pointing out some chinks in that particular armor. There were uh, folks like uh, um, uh, Herb Simon at Carnegie Mellon, oddly enough, who uh, created the idea of satisficing for managers. He said, look, uh, you may say that businesses are trying to maximize profits, but when they looked at what individual managers did, uh, they did uh, basically what was enough uh, to be satisfactory. They didn't keep trying to necessarily optimize or maximize beyond that point. Uh, and uh, when other folks like uh, uh, notably Daniel Kahneman, Namus Tversky, uh, uh, began examining the behavior of individual humans, they found that uh, people were not rational actors at all. Uh, and there's a great book, Thinking Fast and Slow, uh, by Daniel Kahneman, uh, that explains this. It, even though he is a very smart Nobel Prize winner, it is a, quite a readable book. It's it's not a short book, but there is so much information in there that will uh, show you uh, that people do not behave as economists thought. Uh, instead, they behave uh, like humans, and they have all kinds of biases and uh, irrational uh, behaviors. And that's what you have to deal with if you're dealing with them. And in fact. Uh, then our second Nobel Prize winner in the space, uh, Richard Thaler, uh, he wrote, uh, co-authored a great book, Nudge, which uh, again uh, shows how this knowledge can be applied to practical business problems. And uh, he uh, makes the point that uh, if you want to get people to do stuff, make it easier. I, I did not invent that concept, by the way, uh, nor actually did uh, Richard Thaler, but he's got the data to back it up where they have uh, changed, say, government processes to make them easier. And hey, lo and behold, uh, people do it more often. Organ donation is one uh, classic example that he cites in Nudge. And uh, it shows how some European countries uh, uh, in the time period that they uh, measured uh, had very high organ don donation rates, like uh, 98, 99% of, of people signed up to be organ donors, where some countries uh, like Denmark had a miserable 4% of people signing up. So you know, you might think that, gee, these uh, uh, Danes are real jerks, uh, selfish and you know, self-interested and don't care about other people. Which they're not. I've got a lot of listeners no, in no, Denmark. No, no, right. actually, um, <laughs> uh, they are not, uh, nor are the Germans who I think were like in the 25% range. Right, but it's uh, an interesting the, story of how they, they found the friction. Yeah, they. Uh, the difference between these countries uh, was that the processes for 
signing up to be an organ donor were much easier in the countries with high rates. In fact, you were opted in right. uh, and you would have to opt out uh, if you didn't want to be a donor, where in these um, other countries with low rates, uh, you would have to opt in w- using a form or a process of very difficulty. And uh, uh, I'm guessing that uh, at that point, the process in Denmark was rather difficult since only 4% of the people did it. Right, right. So there was a, something very interesting. Uh, I wanted to read this one other quote from um, page 70, because I think a lot of uh, companies and salespeople are always talking about, you know, well, we don't need to worry about friction. But listen to this. If you are trying to get humans to take some action, you can always try to increase their motivation. You can make the alternative to compliance very unpleasant if you are a government agency. Looking at you, IRS. That was my comment. (laughs) It's not in the book. (laughs) Or if you are selling a product, you can make your price lower than your competitors. But these alternatives are rarely better than making the action easier to accomplish. And there's all kinds of, I'm guessing, science that backs this up. Yes, indeed. And that's a a basic tenet of B.J. Fogg's model that uh, you have to be a on one side of this curve, and it's kind of an arbitrary curve. It's not so much a mathematical model as a mental model. Uh, And you can get to the other side of that curve either by uh, increasing motivation or making it easier. And most of the things that you need to do to increase motivation cost you money, like offering discounts and such. Uh, I do in my uh, other writing talk about some uh, less expensive ways to increase motivation using uh, various uh, influence principles and cognitive biases and such. But by and large, uh, the you know, easiest thing to do is to uh, take the friction out of your process uh, and make it easy because there's there's multiple benefits uh, for this, Douglas. Uh, Amazon, about a dozen years ago now, saw that people were struggling with these plastic uh, packages. They're heat-sealed clamshell packages that really show off product nicely in a retail setting, and they're relatively hard for people to steal. But when they get them home, uh, you need a box cutter to, to open them. Yeah, yeah. You need you need a box cutter or shears or you know a, a blowtorch or something. <laughs> and uh, you know people really hated this packaging. So Amazon came up with the idea of frustration free packaging. Uh, it's a low friction package that is simple, plain cardboard, easy to get into. Uh, does not require tools. It uh, is good for the environment or better for the environment certainly than these uh, plastic things. Uh, and the risk of injury when opening it is relatively low, at least by comparison. So uh, what they found uh, that was most interesting, though, was it wasn't that just the people liked the packaging. I mean, that was probably almost a foregone conclusion. But uh, negative comments about the products went down 73% for, the, for those products that changed to this packaging. Uh-huh. So the ease in opening translated into actually liking the product better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, to me, that is uh, such a compelling argument. And they're... Uh, other, uh, there's other research too that shows how people uh, sort of translate difficulty in one sense into uh, negative aspects in another sense. Uh, even as something like reading difficult, a difficult type font oh, yeah. makes whatever they're reading about more difficult to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And making more decisions. Talk about how uh, you know there is a decision fatigue, and if you're forcing people to make too many decisions, you've got friction. Yeah, and I think that um, one one area where I see that happening a lot, Douglas, is market research. You know, every time I stay in a hotel or often when I take a flight, except uh, when it was a bad flight, then they don't send me the survey. Uh, I get to, uh, I get these uh, surveys 
Uh, and these people, uh, unfortunately, uh, want you to talk about it on their terms and satisfy the needs of many different uh, groups within the organization, no doubt. Uh, so they give you, uh, I, in fact, I just, just got one the other day. I think I counted, uh, there were about 45 uh, separate lines on this survey mm. where I was supposed to rate the service in this hotel from <sighs> one to seven. So, and I actually did want to uh, compliment uh, a person who had provided some great service, but uh, the, you know, they go, I started checking these things off, you know, and saying, okay, that was okay. That was okay. You know, I keep going and going and going. Finally, I scroll down. Uh, uh, and a lot of times you can't even scroll down. Uh, you've got to go from one screen to the next screen and they won't let you advance if you uh. haven't answered the one before, uh, you know, and you are so exhausted after a few of these things, um, you know, and it's, it's a cognitive friction that uh, either you just bail out of the process, uh, you know, or uh, you give up, you do something, but most people don't have the energy to do that. When if uh, I, I contrast that with what a survey that people will answer, which uh, I remember I went through customs at uh, an airport and somebody said that they thought it was Singapore. I couldn't remember what, what airport, uh, but Singapore is Changi Airport. Uh, and as, after you go through the immigration process and customs process, uh, there is a, a little set of buttons on the wall with like a smiley face, a frowny face and a neutral face. And says, oh, you know, how was your experience? And bingo. You know, they can get a pretty high rate of compliance with that. And they are also not going to select only those people who have uh, either a whole lot of time on their hands or are so motivated because they're so angry that they're going to complete, uh, you know, answering 47 questions. And, you know, that you simply can't wear people's brains out, particularly if, if it's an ordering process uh, and you start trying to collect marketing information or something is, is part of that. I mean, it's going to cause people to drop out. Yeah. And, you know, to my great surprise, uh, I noticed Southwest Airlines sends me these really long surveys. And I've, I started a couple because I, you know, enjoyed the flight. I like that company. Uh, and I just gave up. And I've also noticed some uh, healthcare systems. They send these three, no, six page document. They mail it to you. And I'm <laughs> sorry. Uh, you know, I, I, I can't do all that. And I think it has more to do with the, um, with the researchers. Um, Roger, let's talk about one other big example that I think a lot of people are aware of, uh, and certainly the people in my office were, and that is the Magic Band at Disney. What was interesting to me, if, I, if you could explain what that Magic Band is, but what brought that about? What was the friction problem Disney was having? Well, you know, it sounds strange, too, because even before this, they probably had the best customer experience of just about any entity on the planet. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, That's why it was so a, surprising to me. Yeah, I mean, and, and so this uh, shows how uh, companies that are truly successful do it. They don't uh, compare themselves against, oh, hey, you know, we're a little bit better than Universal. Uh, they, uh, you know, work to say, how, what could we possibly be? Uh, and what they did find, though, was that uh, they were not frictionless. Uh, uh, people found that they were waiting in lines a lot, even to get into the park. Uh, they were often having to crisscross the park to get to different attractions. In some cases, as many as 20 times per day, they'd be uh, crossing the center of the park to get from one place to another that they wanted to. And you, traffic was often unevenly distributed, so you had big uh, crowds in one place and people were waiting where there were other parts that uh, weren't quite as busy, but that's where, where, the, where the people weren't. Uh, and that uh, people found it more and more of a transactional environment where, you know, they're uh, doing a lot of waiting, weren't seeing everything they wanted to see, uh, and uh, perhaps the service even in the restaurants wasn't that good. And of course, prices are not necessarily cheap there. And was there some metric they had where they found out that 
a large number of people visiting said they weren't going to come back. Yeah, I um, I don't have that stat right at my fingertips. It was surprising, though. Yeah, uh, yeah, they they saw that uh, quite a few people. Uh, uh, it seems I'm thinking it was more like uh, three quarters or something yeah. were, weren't sure they were going to come back. Uh, and that's that's a pretty scary statistic because even though not everybody goes to Disney every year, uh, it sh- they don't expect it to be a once in a lifetime experience either. And they don't <laughs> like want me, it to be yeah, that. yeah, you know. So uh, the uh, they decided to do a complete, uh, uh, technology upgrade. And this, this is kind of a, uh, a, an unusual thing. Uh, they were going to put a billion dollars into tech infrastructure, which really sounds uh, like if you're a typical, uh, manager of a theme park saying, okay, you're going to spend a billion dollars that could buy us, uh, like, um, uh, uh, one and a half new Star Wars rides or something, mm-hmm. uh, and we're going to put it into wiring and Wi-Fi and uh, uh, crazy little uh, wearables, uh, you know, where people aren't going to even experience it. It's, uh, and the team said yes, uh, and uh, what we want to do is uh, make their experience better. Let them consume more uh, stuff when they visit. We don't need another attraction because uh, there's already more attractions than people could visit in weeks and weeks. Uh, instead, we want to ensure that people are uh, experiencing as much as they can in the one day, two day, three days, four days uh, that they have in the parks. Uh, and the Magic Band uh, makes things a lot easier. Uh, it lets people uh, access rides. It, it t- gives a huge amount of data to Disney so they can even manage the crowd flow. Uh, you know, if they see that uh, there's a, a crowd head in one direction, uh, they can attempt through intervention, even by uh, costume characters and such, to uh, guide people elsewhere. Uh, when you sit down in a restaurant, uh, they already know who you are. Uh, they uh, make the ordering process uh, trivially simple. Uh, so you don't waste time waiting for servers uh, to come by, to take your order and go do it. Uh, it simplifies the entire process. And so the people do consume a lot more. I think uh, you've probably had that experience at some attractions where they take a photo of you. And then at the bottom, you look at all the photos they printed out uh, and you select yours uh, for purchase. Uh, Disney makes uh, it automatic. You can sign up for their photo package. And it takes photos of you in uh, all the key places, or even if Mickey Mouse comes up to talk to you uh, and they uh, take a photo, all of these end up in a folder for you, kind of like a Dropbox folder or something, where they're all there automatically in one place. You don't have to think about it. It doesn't uh, slow you down as you're experiencing the park at all. And now the same guy who led that project, John Paget, is at Carnival Cruise Line. Mm. and they are in the process of revolutionizing the cruise experience uh, in perhaps an even even more dramatic way than uh, Disney changed their in-park experience. It's so interesting to me. There have been a number of books on the this podcast about customer experience and what an enormous uh, role that plays in marketing to your customers and getting your company to be uh, shared with others. And it seems that the more that you can put on friction goggles – uh, as you go about trying to engineer a better customer experience, I, I don't know how you do it. In other words, that's like the leading indicator. It's like the first thing you should be uh, zeroing in on. So, um, you know, I figured that. I had to read the book, but I uh, but I figured I figured that out. One thing that's real important to a lot of listeners here, uh, marketing and sales folks, is lead generation. And friction plays a big role in lead generation. And uh, 
was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how friction can be, you know, either removed or added, uh, for better or worse, in terms of improving uh, conversion rates or, or weeding out weaker leads. In fact, there was one example you talked about where there was a uh, a company added friction to their website where a customer could either fill out a form or they could call in. And it was better for the company if people called in. They were better leads. They tended to convert higher. So they got rid of the form and the call-in leads went way away. So they put the form back on and they made the form more difficult and that increased the phone calls. Right. It's um, it, kind of a crazy story. But you know, I think that uh, folks who are involved in lead gen know that uh, minimizing friction generally maximizes the number of leads that you can get. So that if you are doing primarily web leads using a form, the fewer fields there are in the form, the more leads you're going to get. Now, occasionally, if, for instance, it costs you a lot of money to follow up on that lead, you're, say you're going to send it to a field salesperson to check out, you may want to add a little bit of friction because you don't just want uh, uh, anybody doing it. So you you add some fields to that and qualify the customer a little bit. Now, you're not going to get some leads that probably would have been good for you, but you may eliminate uh, uh, some others that uh, were not really too serious. So I mean, that's one way of using friction. But the example that you talk about uh, comes from my friend Brian Massey, um, who uh, conducted that experiment and was, was surprised himself. The, the client said they wanted more leads, uh, uh, phone leads, because those were more productive. So they tried eliminating the form. Uh, and as you described, not only did uh, the uh, none, not only did people not convert, say, from who ha- would have been form fillers into phone leads, the total number of phone leads went down. If, again, you can only speculate as to why, but perhaps people p- felt they were being pressured into mm-hmm. uh, phoning in or something. and uh, it, uh, Felt the, trapped. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, instead, they uh, what they did was they put on what uh, uh, Brian calls a the big ugly form, which was a form with a whole lot of fields that would be quite intimidating to look at. And then they put ahead of it uh, uh, some instructions say, hey, um, we can serve you most quickly if you call in, but if you prefer, then feel free to use this form and we will get back to you eventually. Uh, <laughs> something that was you know, a little bit uh, discouraging, but not, not overly so. Uh, and what they found was the number of uh, phone leads went up uh, uh, over the original, and nobody filled out the big long form. So that that was the optimal case there. Now, you know, people's results may vary, but I think what might have been happening there is there is a uh, psychological principle called uh, "but you are free," uh, and there have been thousands of experiments conducted uh, all around the world on this. Uh, you know, if you want somebody to do something, you might think it's uh, best to close by emphasizing how important it is that they do that thing, whether it's, you know, buy whatever you're selling or whatever. Uh, instead, uh, even though it's counterintuitive, uh, scientists have found consistently across many domains that if you add, but you are free not to, you are free to do the, this other thing, uh-huh. uh, they actually uh, have more people who do the thing they want done. <laughs> right. uh, so it's a, a, like a little pressure relief there. Uh, saying that uh, you don't have to do this, uh, you know, you have options, uh, and that takes it, um, uh, you know, away from being sort of a high pressure uh, sales effort into, or you know, persuasion effort into something a little bit softer. And I'm thinking maybe uh, in this case that form is sort of a BYAF uh, thing that it, it gives people that outlet even though they don't use it. BYAF. 
but you are free. But you are free. Okay. BYAF. Okay. Great. Yeah, it's, that, that, that is, there's so much research on that, Douglas, that it has its own uh, little uh, acronym. Oh, man. man. This is why I do the podcast. I learn so much. Roger, there is one part uh, of the book where you, like I said earlier, you know, companies are starting to realize that customer experience is, you know, very, very important. But you argue that delight, customer delight, is for dummies. Explain what you're talking about and why you argue that delight does not actually drive loyalty. Yeah, and uh, that uh, little subhead, Delight is for Dummies, is meant to be a little bit provocative. I mean, there is absolutely nothing wrong with delighting it, your customers. It works. Okay? I, uh, <laughs> I, I think uh, it's great. Uh, the, there are some problems with it, and, and this isn't my research. This comes from Gartner. Uh, actually, there's a predecessor uh, company, uh, CEB, yeah, that CEB. Uh, now is part of uh, Gartner. Uh-huh. Uh, and, I mean, the problem with Delight is it can be expensive. If you want to exceed your customer expectations every time, uh, that uh, costs money to do. Uh, you know, Four Seasons gives their employees um, a couple thousand bucks of discretionary spending to make a customer happy. But, uh, you know, that's not a solution for, for many companies. Uh, the, uh, it's hard to scale. The bigger you get, the harder it is to keep exceeding expectations. And, of course, if you keep exceeding expectations, what happens? Those expectations arise. And uh, their research showed that uh, even companies that delighted their customers did not necessarily have the level of loyalty uh, go up because of that. What they found really affected customer loyalty was customer effort, particularly in uh, customer service interactions, uh, resolving problems, and other types of interactions with uh, customer service. And uh, they found that uh, high effort customers, uh, that, that is to say, those customers who exerted, uh, had to exert high effort or what they perceived as high effort to solve a problem uh, were vastly more likely to be disloyal than customers who uh, did not have to exert that effort. Uh, they were, and, and the numbers are staggering, it's like uh, 90% uh, uh, likely to be uh, disloyal. Well, let, let me help, because uh, I have it open to the book here. This is, I, I wrote, I, I mean, I couldn't believe it when I read this. 96% of customers who put forth high effort to resolve their issues are more disloyal 59% of customers report moderate to high additional effort in a service interaction, and customer service interactions are nearly four times more likely to lead to disloyalty than loyalty. Wow. Yeah, and you know, I've uh, talked to loyalty experts, and some say that uh, these, these numbers seem um, uh, extreme to them even, but nevertheless, I think that the basic concept is, is true. And, and in fact, the... Uh, uh, one of their metrics is that uh, uh, 88% of customers who have a high effort experience are likely to say bad things about the company versus just 1% of customers who don't have that high effort experience. And to me, that's really telling, but it's it's totally identifiable. I mean, if you ever had a, a kind of a frustrating customer service experience, what do you do? You jump on Twitter and you, you call them out on it, right? Or yeah. Facebook. Uh, well, so, I, I, I feel like I don't want other people to have to suffer if, if nothing else. You know, I'll you're, tell you're friends. You're save the planet. And yeah, actually, I've uh, uh, created a little hashtag friction hunter uh, for people who want to call out these bad experiences and sign me up. Them. Yeah. <laughs> friction <laughs> so, hunters, yeah. Yeah. yeah it, so, I mean, the, it's uh, not that difficult to uh, make changes that lead to loyalty. You know, and the important thing to realize too, Douglas, is that it's the perception of effort. Yes. If the customer thinks they've exerted high effort, 
then it doesn't matter if you think, well, that was a pretty good transaction there. You know, we solved the problem in, uh, you know, 20 minutes. Uh, if the customer uh, had to explain the problem for five minutes to one person and then got transferred to another person, had to re-explain uh, oh. the problem uh, because that information wasn't transferred, uh, or if they had to, as uh, some places, uh, I'm talking about United Airlines, for example, uh, force you to re-authenticate every time you talk to a different person uh, with your uh, you know, strange questions like uh, your best friend's birthday and what kind of books you like and so on. Uh, you know, uh, this creates a perception of effort. Uh, uh, you know, people want their problems solved uh, in the same channel. They don't want to be told uh, on Twitter, hey, um, why don't you call into our 800 number? Uh, they, and the whole process of this sort of multi-layer switching around of, uh, you know, one person not being able to do it, another person's got to do it. Uh, this creates effort. And this is what makes customers disloyal. Oh, yeah. Friction. Roger. Last question I wanted to ask, and that was uh, related to the the, the CEB info. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about where uh, on page 94 you say, most salespeople try to provide customers with the information they need to make a wise purchase. But CEB has found that there's a right way and a wrong way to do that. What are some of the right ways and wrong ways that people, salespeople specifically, are, are adding friction or reducing it? Yeah, and this is this was a surprise to me too, Douglas. Uh, I've been in sales in various forms uh, uh, on and off over the years, and uh, generally, you would think that it would be beneficial to provide the customer with uh, the maximum uh, number of choices and options with clear explanations of the advantages and disadvantages. So, if you offer uh, three different products uh, that might solve the a customer's problem, uh, perhaps vari variations of the same product. Uh, then uh, you would think that it would be good to lay it all out for them and uh, explain uh, the pros and cons, which uh, seems like a good idea. But what they found was that that actually creates um, a sort of a decision friction, if you will. Mm -hmm. And what customers uh, respond better to is expert guidance. So uh, instead of laying it all out and letting the customer decide, you can point out that you do have various solutions, but uh, based on your analysis of the problem and, uh, you know, your experience in similar situations, uh, this option is the best. Now that doesn't mean the customer can't ask about the other options or explore them if they say, nah, maybe that's not right. But, uh, that gives them the confidence that, okay, uh, somebody who knows what they're doing has, uh, suggested this and it eliminates some of that decision friction. Yes, and there's other studies. I think you mentioned uh, the one about the jams where people say they want a lot of options, but the truth is they don't want an uh, infinite number of options. So, Roger, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Uh, I think a basic uh, uh, understanding that uh, effort, uh, even tiny, tiny bits of effort, uh, change human behavior. And uh, it's important to internalize that, uh, whether you are designing a customer experience, whether you are creating uh, processes inside your company, or even if you are trying to uh, adopt or break habits. Uh, once you realize that even small amounts of friction can make a difference, uh, that will start changing the way you think about things. Yes, and it was just so interesting in the book, <laughs> giving examples of things where they thought, well, that's not that big a deal. Well, it actually led to other things. And also, it seems like if you're looking for friction, you're sort of automatically uh, thinking about your customer and being uh, 
you know, empathetic from, from their standpoint, all of which are very, very good things. What books have inspired your working career? Well, I think uh, probably many books, but a couple that come to mind. I already mentioned Thinking Fast and Slow by mm -hmm. Kahneman. Uh, I would also add uh, Robert Cialdini's influence. Uh, yes. uh, to me, that uh, underlies so much of what we do. And I've probably internalized uh, a lot of that book already. And I, I sort of use those techniques without even thinking about it. Uh, uh, but I mean, to me, that, that set up the uh, uh, whole concept of employing uh, psychology and behavioral science to uh, market better uh, and even to uh, interact with other humans better. Here, here, and uh, he's on the cover of your book, uh, endorsing it. So that's uh, that's terrific. Yes, one one of his principles, actually, Douglas, is reciprocation, which means you do something uh, for me, I'm more likely to do something for you. But but that comment was not reciprocation. Uh, that was <laughs> and, no, uh, no, 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 uh, for, for his blur. But uh, that that was uh, truly uh, uh, an honest endorsement of his work. I mean, he is. Uh, uh, still, he also has a second book, uh, Persuasion, but I would uh, do Influence Before Persuasion. Right. Uh, what an honor to you to be able to have uh, Dr. Cialdini have um, endorsed it. And there were so many other famous people who've endorsed it. And I was excited because I saw that I've been able to interview several of them. So it's like a, a baseball card collector. So are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? The uh, one that uh, isn't uh, quite uh, that recent, but I think is uh, kind of interesting, is Trust Factor uh, from Paul Zak. He's the oxytocin guy. Oh, yeah. And it's um, uh, about trust inside high-performing organizations or what makes high-performing organizations. And what makes that book different than a lot of books uh, is that in addition to just doing sort of case studies uh, – his teams took thousands of blood samples uh, to measure oxytocin levels as part of their research. So uh, some of the conclusions they came to, I mean, a lot of it reads like a sort of conventional business book uh, about the things you should do. But uh, those conclusions are based on, uh, in part, uh, not just observation of human behavior, but also on blood tests. And what uh, the uh, sort of short story is there that organizations that have a high level of trust outperform organizations that don't. Yes. And uh, isn't he also the love doctor? Yes. Yeah, that, that is him. Yeah. It's that funny. Um, my wife was telling me about oxytocin and how, um, you know, you can uh, get oxytocin by hugging your dog and your dog gets oxytocin. So when you talked about that in the book, it's almost like you're eavesdropping on me. I took a picture of that section of the book and uh, texted it to her. So it's funny. Now, yeah, he's been on my podcast, and uh, we, we talked a little bit about the uh, the dog thing, and it's it's great. Uh, uh, I'm hoping that a lot of uh, uh, you know that other scientists pursue this. Uh, his lab has been the one doing it, and of course, we've had these uh, replication issues in social sciences. Uh, but uh, I think that uh, uh, his work has really been fascinating, and in particular, his organizational insights are on the money. Absolutely. So how best can listeners learn more about you and this new book? Well, probably the best jumping off point uh, is rogerdooley.com. And there you can find my podcast, link to my uh, blog posts, uh, and also information about the books. And of course, it is at Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and other places as well. Terrific. Well, we will include links to your sites, 
uh, your, your, your LinkedIn profile, your blog, your Twitter handle, and all the books that you've mentioned on this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com so that listeners can find all those links. And also, I hope they'll connect with you and thank you for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. And for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode and clicking on the show notes link. Closing quote, I'll make a bold prediction. If you've read this far, or if you've even read part of this book and skipped ahead, you have begun to see friction everywhere. You see it in the supermarket. You see it when you try to get help from a company. You see it in your own organization. Most of the time, you already knew something was wrong. Maybe an activity was more complex or time-consuming than it needed to be. The procedure didn't make sense. But now, you have a name for it. Friction! I hope you will use that name often and loudly and eliminate it every chance you get. The name of the book is Friction, the untapped force that can be your most powerful advantage. The author is Roger Dooley. Roger, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Well, Douglas, thank you for having me. This has been really a great conversation. And that closes the book on episode 237 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor, Blinkist. To support the Marketing Book Podcast and start your free Blinkist trial or get 20% off your yearly plan, visit Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast or just click on the link at MarketingBookPodcast.com. And please join us next time as we welcome John Brandt to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his new book, Nincompoopery, Why Your Customers Hate You and How to Fix It. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Amanda Harrison. This is your moment. Your moment to move forward and make progress. It's time to see where an education can take you. For over 130 years, Strayer University has been at the forefront of change. Offering programs that help students like you get ahead and stay ahead, so you can keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by Chef.